Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. We have a great guest today in Isaac Paul, who is the founder, editor of a a very popular newsletter called Tangle. Check it out. I have it in the description as far as I go into his site to sign up for the newsletter. At the end of his interview, he'll tell you how to go ahead and sign up for that newsletter. He, he has some of the concepts that we really talked about at Coffee Party USA and other organizations where we don't try to change our values. We don't try to change our ideologies. The, because the good parts, I mean, and, and the truth of the matter is if you're from a progressive standpoint, you know what we stand for. But what you try to do is understand the other side, communicate with the other side. And a lot of people say right now, it's not possible. I found what, uh, Isaac does is very intriguing in that he puts both positions out. And, you know, the, the sensible, the, the, the objective reader, whether you are a right wing ideologue or a left wing ideologue or somebody that really quite doesn't know, when you see these things side by side in his newsletter, the way he presents it and the way he presents his only, his, his way of thinking, it really gives you the indication that, you know what? Maybe there are other ways to look at things. So we, we have a good conversation with him today. But also we bring on a board of director, a local station board of director, Venetia Williams, which uh, she has a new concept to support the station that I want you guys to listen to. I'll just kind of spill the beans. 52 on 52. But anyhow, she's going to talk to you But you know, right now we have a whole lot of things. Civil war within the the Senate, the Republican Senate. We also have things like uh, Jen Psaki having to lay the law down on how oil, you know, on all the leases that that are out there for oil companies to use if they want it. When they when you hear them saying Biden is restricting our production of oil, it's a lie. It's a lie. Is he trying to make things more amenable to the green industry? You bet your life, because that's our only saving grace. Think about it. If we were already electrified, we could have used all other forms of making electricity to drive our cars, our electric cars, and do a whole lot of stuff with much less dependency on petroleum. So that is where we need to head. So we have a lot of other things we're covering in the show today. Stick around. I think you're really going to enjoy the entire program, because as usual, what what I tell you, all of the times is what we try to cover is yes, what's active and what needs coverage and what you see today on everyday channels. But we put a perspective that generally you're not going to find on the mainstream media because they can't give it to you because many times 
It's in contrast to what the plutocracy, the oligarchy, the corporatocracy would want you to hear. So stick around. We have a great, great program for you. And you know, you're going to love it. You know how I start this, baby. Let's get busy. Well, you've got to see this one. Watch how Mitch McConnell, in no uncertain terms, ditch Rick Scott, the up-and-coming Republican from Florida, the guy who made his $200-quarter-billion-dollar fortune by ripping off Medicare. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side, because it's quite a sight to see. So I hope all of us do our part to do everything we can to hold Putin accountable and make sure the Ukrainian citizens keep their independence. Senator Senator Rick Scott, who's introduced an agenda that Democrats have seized on, includes tax increases. It's been very controversial. I wonder what your thoughts on this are. Well, Senator Scott is behind me and he can address the issue of his uh, particular measure. If we're fortunate enough to have the majority next year, I'll be the majority leader. I'll decide in consultation with my members what to put on the floor. And let me tell you what would not be a part of our agenda. We will not have as part of our agenda a bill that raises taxes on half the American people and sunsets Social Security and Medicare within five years. That will not be part of a Republican Senate majority agenda. Mitch McConnell has spoken. Mitch McConnell says, Rick Scott, I don't care about any 11-point plan. I will be the majority leader when we win in 2022, and you will do as I say, and you bring an 11-point plan or try to turn that into something. It will get you nowhere because I am in control. I am Mitch McConnell. And you are just a peon talking. Go do what you need to do to raise money for the Republican Party. But I'm in control. Don't you forget it. I wonder what will be Rick response to Rick Scott's response to that. Notice how after he spoke, he just walked off. He didn't stick around. McConnell says, you'll have to ask Rick. He's behind me. <laughs> Rick said, ask me. Bye-bye. I said my piece about Ukraine. And I'm gone. You're on your own, Mitch McConnell. I wonder where this is headed. We'll see. The Civil War has begun in the Republican Party. And guys, this is real. I mean, Rick Scott... Well, I I tell you what. Let me go ahead and let you hear uh, how it was characterized on MSNBC today. And then we'll get a little bit deeper. Check this out. Then we'll take it on the other side. Rick Scott announced his campaign for Senate uh, Republican leader, apparently. That was your journal, Betsy. I say this because he decided to write an op-ed defending his decision to to put out his own 11-point plan and said, yes, everybody should know what it's like to pay taxes, despite McConnell's rebuke. I mean, this seems to be he's put it down on the floor. It's really it's really an amazing level of tension within the Senate Republican conference, which is one of the few uh, remaining usually collegial groups of people on Capitol Hill. The fact that Scott is really taking a shot at McConnell in this op ed is I imagine just a symbol of of much more to come. And it points to the fact that McConnell has a real weakness with the Republican base that Scott is positioned to exploit. All right. I hate to put it in these stark terms. If Republicans win the Senate, 
Is Rick Scott majority leader? And if Republicans don't win the Senate, Mitch McConnell's minority leader bill? I think, we're Scott, I think there's more of a chance of Scott deposing McConnell than people think. We're also used to McConnell. I think it is too. We're also this- used to McConnell being leader, always got real loyalty. Well, does he have that much loyalty? An awful lot of these senators were elected in the last two, three, four cycles. Scott may look more like an up-and-coming guy, younger and so forth. Scott also has in the back of his mind, obviously, running for president in 2024. So what are both? I think, I think Sochi is suddenly a big fan of the NRSC chair. Remember... What 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 uh, in an earlier video, El Senor Mitch McConnell said, I will be the majority leader and this is what's going to happen. Well, it turns out that Rick Scott may have other ideas. He issued that 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 uh, op-ed that they're talking about said the following. He wrote an op-ed that says, why am defying Beltway cowardice? Well, he claimed he's defying Beltway cowardice, right? But he still hasn't come out and talked against all the bad things done by Donald Trump. But somehow he's going to go against cowardice. But he said the following. I have committed heresy in Washington. I've been in the Senate for only three years and I've released an 11-point plan with 128 ideas on what Republicans should do after we win the coming election and take control of the Senate and House. In the real world, beyond the beltway, Republicans and independents demand bold action and a plan to save our nation. They see no point in taking control of Congress if we are simply going to return to business as usual. And by the way, his uh, change means uh, that he's going to increase uh, taxes on at least half of the American people, right? He then says, um, we are losing this country to the militant left has seized control of the federal government, the news media, big tech, you know, the standard regular stuff that they like to talk about. And then he talks about, I've been told there are unwritten rules in Washington about what you can and cannot say. You can't tell the public that Social Security and Medicare are going bankrupt. You can't talk about term limits because while voters want them, nobody in Washington does. You can't talk about balancing the budget or shrinking the debt. Well, what we can talk is how you got rich, Senor Scott. And the fact that you brought up Medicare and you want to cut Medicare for all after you've done all those those sneaky things uh, with Medicare. Oh, we'll see how that goes over. But he ends the op-ed interestingly with the following paragraph. There will be many more attacks on me and this plan for career from careerists in Washington who personally profit while ruining this country. Bring it on. The American people are fed up and they will show that at the ballot box this November. Do you really want to say that? You just open the door for people to see exactly how you used government, Senor Rick Scott, to get rich. You are the one who used government money to get rich. It's amazing, the gall of these politicians. It's always great to see a good pushback in the mainstream media. In this case, it was from a a truthful pundit. Well, as it turns out, from the Atlantic Council came one of their pundits, one of their reps that came out and said, and and they they tried to push the same old uh, Trump narrative that somehow Donald Trump was tougher on Russians than was President Biden. Of course, what Donald Trump was doing was using policies from the past administrations, but, you know, let's let it stand. It turns out that when Ayman Mohayadin asked a few questions of this woman, she decided to 
tell them, first of all, that, hey, you guys are a speculative show. And, and by the way, you don't really have it right because Donald Trump was tougher on Russia. Of course, that's not the truth. And while watching it, I sat there and I'm like, who is going to refute this woman? Well, Eamon did a good job. He first said, wait a minute, wasn't this guy trying to undermine Russia by trying to destroy NATO? And she had to admit, yes, that's true. But the coup de grace came later on when she was put in her place based on what really, really occurred. Listen to this and then let's go ahead and take it on the other side. Melinda, can you give us the long view here on what Tom was describing? How did the GOP evolve from the party of Reagan's Cold War mentality to where they are now or where they were just prior to the Russian invasion? There's some problems with uh, some of the arguments you guys have laid out. So Zelensky did get the meeting. uh, He'd got the White House meeting last year. Uh, And there's some other problems with some of the arguments you guys have laid out. Uh, Yeah, Trump was terrible on Ukraine. He was obnoxious. He got rid of Yovanovitch. Uh, He did also he 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 brought about a Ukraine gate. All that's true. But his actual policy was not bad. He was actually pretty tough on Russia. Uh, And I think that gets lost in the debate. Uh, Would would he or would he not have gone in now? So the interesting thing is that the Russians are more scared of Trump than they are of Biden. The Russians think that Biden is weak. And that was one of the reasons why they calculated that they could go in now. They were scared of Trump because he was irrational and he's erratic. So I'm not sure, you know, this is a highly speculative show, uh, but I think that has to be part of the discussion as well. No, it's fair enough. But let me ask you really quickly. Do you feel that Trump weakened the European or transatlantic alliance and weakened NATO or certainly set out to do that? Absolutely. I think that's unquestionably true. But I think the important thing is how. how Sorry, can I just follow up on that real quick? If that was if that was something that Trump did set out, wouldn't that be in Putin's calculation of saying if he's weakened the alliance for me, then I don't necessarily have to do anything because the major threat to me that he perceived has been weakened for me without even having to fire a bullet. No, it's it's a lot bigger than that. So one of the reasons that he went in, one of the reasons Vladimir Putin went in was he saw weakness everywhere. He saw it in Europe. There was no Merkel. He saw weakness in the United States and he saw weakness in Ukraine. There was no one to stop him. It wasn't just about Trump. It's much broader than that. I can't let it stand to say that Trump was somehow tough on Russia here. There has to be a correction involved because the policies of the U.S. government were tough on Russia, put in place under Bush and Obama. Trump was impeached specifically because he was trying to get other people to break the law to undermine those existing policies because he didn't want to be perceived as rolling back those policies. He was literally trying to undermine the policies of his own government by getting other people to break the law and and to weaken Ukraine. Uh, And that's why he was impeached. So it's not correct to say that Trump was tough. The existing policies were tough. Trump had left them in place and then broke the law and reached the point of impeachment by trying to undermine those policies. So we I, I just I have to make that correction. We have to make that correction. And you know what was great? She tried to imply that, well, yes, NATO, uh, he tried to destabilize it. Well, once you say, once you say that he was trying to destabilize NATO, you're already saying that he's playing into the hands of 
Putin. And why? Because that is exactly what Putin wants done. So she was incoherent. And I think for all practical purposes, no one can take her seriously anymore talking about any of these issues if she refuses to accept the fact that no, Donald Trump was never, ever tougher on Russia than other previous presidents. None of them would have done the things that Donald Trump did. And as, as the pundit said, what it's a fact is that Donald Trump was impeached for his attempt at undermining the United States of America. Not in quite those terms, but exactly that. Hey guys, as you guys know, we have been alive for 52 years. And you know what? Venetia Williams, one of our board members, came out with a hell of an idea. And I want her to kind of pump it up for us. But all of you guys that are listening to us right now, Fun Drive is over, but we still need you guys. Hey, Venetia, tell us what you think we, or not what you think, tell us what we as members of Pacifica, as members of KPFT, need to do right now. Well, right now, you know, we celebrating our 52nd birthday. And because we didn't do anything last year because of COVID, everybody's been asking, what we going to do? 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 So I came up with 52 on 52, which means $52 for 52 years. It's a fundraiser I've done with countless other nonprofit organizations. And so the premise of it is that you just donate 50, simple Simon. You donate $52 for 52 years. That's all you got to do. And it's our birthday celebration, and that's what it's for. Look, let me tell you, Pacifica is, or rather, KPFT is a hell of a radio station. We serve Houston. We're here to serve, and that's what we we do. do. And, you know, if you just go to our website and go to Wait, how do they donate anyway? You tell me. Okay, they donate by going to kpft.org and the um the fund drive phone number. You know, I don't know that phone number by heart, but it's 713-526-5738. Come on, Venetia. <laughs> okay, you know, I never memorized. They need to get a simpler phone number, 526 or something. <laughs> I can't remember. But, but anyway, you just go to those two. You either go to the website or you go to the phone number and just follow the just follow the prompts. Well, and it, then you know how they ask you for what show you want it to be for. Just say 52 on 52. Well, It'll you know, come you know up. What? It's It'll, so funny. I, I did it even simpler because, you know, uh, I went on the website and that they had that thing that said PayPal. And since you guys go key on. Oh, yeah. PayPal. Oh, I'll yeah. Just click on PayPal. And I did the 52 bucks because $52, you embarrassed right. me in the board meeting because it was like, you mean you haven't done your 52 dollars yet? And I'm like, I did not do that. Hey, I did not do. Might as well. You had. <laughs> Because of no, it. I said that all board members need to donate, and they do. Because when you, what's his name, is working himself crazy trying to find grants. And the first thing, I'm serious, a lot of people, if you're not into grant writing, you don't understand it. But if they're going to shell out big money, the first thing they're going to ask you is, what is your, is your board 100%? Is your board 100%? And that's the first question they're going to ask. So 52 to me, $52. Okay. And let's say, okay, you it's hard times or whatever. You can stretch. I, you know, I don't like to promote this, but you can, you can stretch the $52 out 
for I, but you know what, Venetia, I follow your lead. And the truth of the matter is you've been working in this business for a long time in making sure that people get get good programming and making people sure that these nonprofit radio stations can stay alive, especially in these times when we need it. I just want to thank you because oh. everybody knows, everybody knows this 52 on 52 campaign is yours. It has a ring to it. And for all of you that are listening to Politics Done Right right now, this is 52 now. Look, Venetia is one of our, our trusted members. And I tell you, what, <laughs> oh, that's so if, sweet. if she says 52 Just on 52, <laughs> let's do 52 on 52. So call right now, 713 526 5738. 52 on 52, tell them that you want to give that 52 bucks. And I tell you what, the easy way, go to kpft.org and click the donate button or click the PayPal button, whichever or one. Click PayPal. And, yeah, and choose $52 and, and keep this station alive. We're still working mm-hmm. very hard to get that new building, that new equipment. Oh, everything. yeah, we get the new building, y'all. And we I got some ideas for that, too, but I just did not say that out loud. Because I all the parties haven't gotten together yet. But well, you know, um, we, we, we we you know let, let's stick to 52 on 52 until mm-hmm. you get all of that stuff hammered out, Venetia, and then we're gonna get it done. So, folks, again, we want to thank we I, I want to thank very kindly Venetia for appearing on Politics Done Right to promote oh. this 52 on 52. Because I tell you what, KPFT needs needs good people out there working yes, their butts do. off. For, for this station. And Venetia is one of our trusted members that's out there busting her butt for this station. Venetia Williams, thank you so kindly for coming Aww, on. To thank you, Invertown. You know I love you. You're one of my favorite people. Well, you know, you know it's like ditto, ditto. Yeah, you're one of my favorite people. We got it, girl. Thank you very much. For All right. No, thank you. And thank you, everybody. Huh? 52 on 52. There you go, 52 on 52. Thank you, folks. A lot, a lot of people of color are having problems getting out because they get to the train stuff and they say, no, no, the true, real, real Ukrainians first. So think about this. Suppose we were to go ahead and help them out and help them out. We go ahead and help them out and we have some 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 Latinos and some some dark skinned Latinos and black guys going out there and fighting in Ukraine. And then they have to get out and to think about a Ukrainian saying, I'm sorry, we got to get the Ukrainians first. That's the first thing that hit my mind when I saw that. I said, these people are are going through a war and their prejudice was their prejudice superseded their state of war. Their prejudice superseded their state of war. Can you believe that? Those were some of the things that said, told me right then and there, you know, go fight your war. We'll help you because we don't want Russia. is just as bad, by the way. So, you know, go fight your war and we'll help you however we can. But as to go ahead and spill American blood. Absolutely not. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side with what McCall had to say. 
My next guest is calling on the Western world to do more to help Ukrainians win the fight for their country. In a piece he co-authored, former National Security Council director Alexander Vindman writes, the Kremlin has become a fascist threat and it is Ukraine that is leading the charge to defend Europe, a fight that the world cannot afford to let the Ukrainians lose. Joining me now is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the former director for European Affairs for the National Security Council. He has served in the United States embassies in both Kiev and Moscow. He is also a veteran of the Iraq war and a Purple Heart recipient. There was a threat assessment um, update uh, in Congress earlier today with the intelligence community giving an update to to the House uh, Intel members. Um, And the assessment said that um, it is not believed that Russia wants a direct conflict with the United States. Uh, There is an ongoing discussion about the no-fly zone. Uh, The West has said, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. We just heard Courtney Kuby explaining why. Um, I'm going to ask you, as somebody who knows this better than I do, if Russia and Vladimir Putin don't want a direct conflict with us, does that make it an easier decision to say, hey, yes, I think we can risk a no-fly zone? Absolutely. We have to understand that our options are going to narrow and that the risks we perceive today as high are going to be a, a pale in comparison to the risks that we'll face months down the road as this unwinds in, in a humanitarian catastrophe and, uh, and Russian incrementalism. Again, this is the, the doubling down approach that Vladimir Putin prefers, and that's brought us to this point. I want to start off with the conversation I was just having with Colonel Vindman. Um, what is sure. your view um, about uh, a no-fly zone right now and the risks, uh, considering the threat assessment that we heard from U.S. Intel earlier today? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, just full disclosure, uh, Colonel Vindman, he wasn't a colonel then, but he served on my team in Moscow. So you, you've got great guests. And, and I really, I want to just congratulate the coverage that we we together have been doing here, um, uh, especially the Ukrainian voices. Their, their voices need to be heard. Uh, I disagree with Alex. Uh, I think a no-fly zone is, is the wrong move. I support the president of the United States on that. Um, uh, let's just get rid of this euphemism, no-fly zone. Let's call it for what it is, is war. Uh, If we try to uh, implement a no-fly zone, that means that an American pilot has to shoot down a Russian pilot. And if we do that, that's a declaration of war. Uh, And Vladimir Putin has been very clear that that's the way he sees it. And if we're prepared to do that, if the American people want to go to war with Russia, I think it would be a mistake. But if we're prepared to do it, then we should have a vote in the U.S. Congress because the Congress is supposed to declare war. Um, That's what we need to do first. We should stop calling it a no-fly zone. and We should start calling it declaration against uh, Russia to go to war. And I just don't think that's the right thing to do right now. He's absolutely right. It's not the right thing for us to do right now. Something that we should not do at all. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead. Number one, subscribe to our channel. And number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire Internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. We have a great guest to 
to bring you today. You know what we talk about a whole lot, speaking to all sides, being able to communicate very well on all sides. Well, this is the man. Isaac Saul is the founder and editor of Tangle, an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan newsletter that has been recognized by the New York Times, Forbes, and Substack as one of the most successful political newsletters. Tangle has over 30,000 daily readers and presents a left-right breakdown of the biggest political news stories of the day. You got to check it out with the goal of representing the best arguments from both sides of the aisle. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Isaac, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, look, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get started, et cetera? Sure. Yes. Uh, I'm a political journalist. And, uh, you know, I came to this work by publishing my writing, my opinions, my investigative journalism, my straight news reports in a wide variance of news outlets. And over time, realizing that people essentially trusted or listened to what I was writing based solely on the outlet that it was being published in. So, you know, I could write the same piece in Fox News and Huffington Post. And if it was in Fox News, no liberal would read it or care about it or trust it. And if it was in the Huffington Post, no conservative would read about it or care about it or trust it. And I decided that I wanted to try and bridge the gap a little bit. And, you know, I think there's a lot of problems with the current media ecosystem And one of them is that we're not honest about our biases as journalists. Uh, Another one of them is that, you know, depending on what news outlet you read, you're almost certainly going to get basically just one side of the story. And so I came up with this concept to just put what the right is saying, put what the left is saying right next to each other, let you read both of those things, come to your own conclusions, add a little bit of my own commentary, some basic facts about the story too, and then kind of take it from there. I love, I, I, I simply love that because I hate to say that's what I do. You know, I mean, we, 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 (laughs) I'm a, I'm a lefty, but the truth of the matter is a lot of my audience are people on the right because of the honesty with which I accept what I believe in. And I accept what they accept that they believe what they believe. And I think that's important. I mean, I, I I don't know. I kind of have a hunch where you, your persuasion is. I'm not quite sure, especially after writing that particular Huffington Post article about Hillary Clinton. I (laughs) thought it was, you know, I was going to hit that one. Uh, But, you know, I, I, but I mean, it was honest. And, And that is what I think people, people like. I think people probably enjoy that. Uh, it's it's not about what you say. It's about whether what you're saying is fact based or whether you're honest with the belief that you have your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, what I like to say is that, uh, you know, I'm politically incongruent. I don't fit into one box. You know, I mean, the story you're referencing is a piece I wrote, uh, I guess, seven, six or seven years ago now in 2016, leading up to the election, where I basically, you know, apologized for some really critical writing I had written about Hillary Clinton. I'd, I'd sort of excoriated her and then gone back and said, you know what, maybe there's more merit to her candidacy than I had thought. But, you know, over time, my politics have evolved on a lot of issues, especially as I've grown up and seen more of the world. And uh, I think what, what I what I typically say to people is, you know, it just depends on the issue. Sometimes people subscribe to Tangle on a Monday 
and they reply to the newsletter that day and they say, you said you were nonpartisan, but you know, I can tell you're a liberal from your take in today's newsletter. And then the people who sign up on Tuesday will say, you say you're nonpartisan, but I can tell you're a secret conservative based on your take in today's newsletter. And it's because, you know, it just depends on the issue. And I think a lot of Americans are like that. I think a lot of people don't fit neatly into one political box. And I'm trying to say, you know, that's okay. It's all right to, it's all right to dunk on your team every now and then it's all right to change your point of view on something. If you see a good argument for it and it's okay to say, you know, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. And I think that that's becoming more and more popular today. I mean, independents are now the largest self-identified political group in America. And it's for good reason, because, uh, you know, the, the two major parties are both deeply flawed right now. Yeah, they're absolutely and deeply thought. Now, interestingly, you said something about um, the, the, you know, not being a partisan. I, I don't, I don't consider myself a partisan. I consider myself, however, believing in a particular ideology. And I think what's interesting is most of the people in this country believe they believe in my ideology, and I would, I would, I would proffer your ideology as well, which is whatever is good for the vast majority of people, whatever, whatever the policies are. And, you know, most of the times those policies appear in one section, but every so often it appears somewhere else as well. And you have to be brave enough to, to point that out. And I think in your writings, that is your later writings, that is something that you've proved your thoughts on that. Look, I mean, I think, uh, you know, progressives are called progressives for a reason and conservatives are called conservatives for a reason. I mean, one side is trying to change the country and reform it in a lot of ways. And the other side is trying to prevent change and hold on to certain things from the past. And I think there are great things about our country and our country's founding and and the status quo. And there are really bad things about it too. And, And that to me is sort of what both sides kind of bring to the table and offer in a really helpful and valuable way. Um, You know, I think one of my positions right now that is sort of evolving or I'm reflecting on a bit more is that I have for a long time been a huge critic of our military defense budget and how big it is and how bloated it is and how much money we spend on guns and tanks and airplanes and bases in other countries when our schools are falling apart and all these things. And then, you know, I watched Ukraine get invaded by an authoritarian leader this this month. And I have to admit, it it occurred to me, I'm really, really glad that I know this would never happen in the United States because we're the biggest and the baddest and nobody's going to come for us. And it was the first time in my life I've ever really second guessed that political view of mine. And I'm trying to reflect on it with an open mind right now. And I think, you know, more Americans should be open to that and open to changing their opinions and thinking about it because, you know, I, I think the vast majority of people are well-intentioned. And while most politicians are very interested in preserving their power, there are a number of really decent, good politicians on both sides of the aisle who are trying to do what they think is, is good for the country. Now, you opened a door that I, I, I would like for you to maybe write some, some about, and I'd, be, I'd love to get that newsletter myself and, and post it. But you made an interesting point that uh, Ukraine really sort of make you, made you rethink your 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 process your thought process on big military and you know i i you know there's for me that's neither here and there other than uh should we look at it from the point of view like okay i'm glad that there's still a big military as opposed to why can't we do both or even that uh maybe some is overkill your thoughts 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess, first of all, it's something I'm still processing a little bit. And so I'll, I'll caveat everything I'm about to say with that, but, you know, I think it's just that I'm, I'm realizing that our safety and our security as a country is something that I often take for granted. And that a lot of countries across the planet don't live with that safety and don't live with that security. And the reason that we have that safety and that security is because we have the biggest and the most well-funded military in the world. And most countries recognize that it would be a suicide mission to, to invade us or to you know really mess with us even on the world stage. Now, of course, that doesn't change my view that a lot of the the military explorations that we've taken from Iraq to Afghanistan to funding Saudi arms, all these things, I still view very negatively. I mean, I don't think we should be spending our military money on projects in other nations, quote unquote, you know, spreading democracy with bombs. But I do, I think for the first time, really recognize why so many people, why so many conservatives in particular support such a huge military budget, which is that they recognize that there are a lot of threats out there in the world and it's better to be safe than sorry. And, um, you know, just watching the events of the last few weeks have, have made me reflect on that a little bit. You know, um, today I got a message from uh, from a good friend that we participate in several um, uh, organizations, nonpartisan org- organizations, that is. And one of the questions that she asked, and um, this is this isn't any kind of a, 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 a gotcha or anything, but I, I would love to hear your opinion on that because I gave an opinion. I'm I'm pulling it up as we speak if it'll decide to come up someday, somehow, sometime. But I'll, I'll caveat the question and say it this way: She said, "Is journalism uh, should, is has it says should journalistic objectivity?" be standard reporting your thoughts on should i'm going to give you my answer after but i'm curious to see how you would interpret that question yeah it's a a huge question our industry is facing right now and my answer is that no journalist is truly objective there are fair journalists and there are hacks and i think it's really important to separate the two i think it's important to separate the reporters out there who clearly have a political agenda, who are willing to obscure the facts or spread misinformation in order to tell the story they want to tell. But I know a lot of liberal and a lot of conservative journalists, people who openly wear their politics on their sleeves, who are also really great, fair reporters that will go out and cover a story and do it fairly. And I think there's a lot of honor in the work that journalists do when it's done right. And the best reporters feel a great deal of responsibility to try and tell a story that's true and honest and holistic. And so, you know, it's not always easy to decipher, but uh, one of the things I like to remind people is, look, even the most liberal journalists in the world are often the ones who are most critical of their team, of the Democratic Party. I mean, they're the ones who write the hardest hitting stories about the president who is a Democrat because they expect the highest of that president. Um, the, The famous example, in my opinion, is, you know, the New York Times, widely seen as a left wing newspaper now, is the paper that broke the story on Hillary Clinton's emails. They're the paper that has covered Obama's drone wars in the Middle East. You know, two of the biggest stains on two of the biggest Democrats in the country came from the New York Times, which is supposed to be a paper that is, you know, a left wing paper. And um, you just never know how it's going to play out. You know, I, 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 first of all, I agree with absolutely 
everything that you said. I want to read two short paragraphs that I told her, and I want you to comment on that and, and, and expand on it, actually. I said, should journalistic objectivity, uh, standard reporting, yes, but journalistic objectivity has never existed. To big, begin with, journalists and or their producers choose the stories they cover, and the stories they cover, even if they are simply reporting occurrences without opinion, illustrate subjectivity. As an example, figure out all the violent crime in any given city, then watch the local news. Do the protagonists of said violent crime on the six o'clock news reflect either the totality or proportionality of those in reality? I don't think it does. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, story selection bias is one of the biggest and most important kinds of bias that exists in the news. Obviously, you know, the easiest way to illustrate this is go to HuffingtonPost.com on one morning and then go to FoxNews.com on the same day. And the front pages of those two websites will be radically different, despite the fact they're trying to cover the exact same thing, you know, U.S. national politics and and global political world. Um, They choose stories based on how they want their audience to feel on that day or what they want their audience to click on. So obviously, you know, a Fox news knows that if they cover a story about 50 migrants trying to cross the Southern border, that's going to get a lot more clicks than the Huffington post would get if they covered that exact same story, Um, you know, related to the crime numbers, it's an interesting point. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's another reminder that, even something that's supposed to be as straightforward as data can be really obscured. I mean, the the violent crime rise across the United States right now, I think, is a really complex thing. And I see a lot of people trying to assign it to, oh, the police are pulling back because of the defund the police movement. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe there's something there. Maybe that's something to do with it. But, you know, we also just went through a global pandemic where millions of people lost their jobs and anxiety was really high and people are using drugs more. And, you know, these are all things that contribute to crime rates. And so, um, you know, it's it's very rarely the black and white answer. I, I like to tell people, you know, look for the gray and you'll find some clarity, actually, believe it or not. And, you know, piggy, piggybacking on that, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, it's, it's complex. It's a bit more complex, but most of our reporters, including the, the, the regular mainstream media, and that's why a newsletter like yours is so important because you go, go through and the machinations of both sides, or I shouldn't say both sides, it's really the machinations of all sides to actually try to discern where it's not commonality, but where the actual math exists. I always tell people BS in, BS out. If the FBI data looks like crap when it goes in because of who actually gets the numbers in there, the numbers that get out is going to be crap as well. Now, we take a look at something like Ukraine right now. Ukraine, it has the real sympathetic ear of the United States right now. And we really feel for those people who look like most Americans right now. And we cannot believe that those things are happening in Ukraine. And uh, I mean, worse, worse atrocities continue today to occur throughout the world that we don't see. Remember talking earlier about selectivity of stories, et cetera, what actually get covered. And um, we, we, we don't we don't see that. So we take a look and say a lot of people immediately blame Americans and say, look at how Americans are. This this white country in, in Europe gets nailed for who they care when. In, if we take a look at the totality, our media does not humanize elsewhere like they humanized Ukraine. You can't blame the average American populace 
for the impressions that they get from the fourth estate. And that's why I talk about the importance of what you do, the importance of what I do, because again, it's not easy to just go blame Americans for that's how they are, how Americans are. No, Americans are reflecting what the fourth estate presents to them. Your your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think it's a really great point. I mean, I actually just wrote a bit of a Twitter thread about this recently, which was, you know, the response that I saw, I think, was similar to the response you saw when there was this outpouring of love and support for Ukraine. There was a lot of people who were sort of shaming people who felt for Ukraine, saying, oh, where were you when, you know, bombs were being dropped on Yemen or in Iraq or Syria? And my message was, you know, this is an opening here. We have an opportunity where we're getting a clear view that when people are exposed to these kinds of horrors, it's really moving them. And instead of seeing that as an opportunity to shame somebody for feeling horrible about what's happening in Ukraine, use it as an opportunity, as an opening to realize that the more people who see these kinds of things happening across the world, the more humanity and empathy there will be for them. And the greater our chances are of actually stopping war and stopping these things from happening in the future. And so don't spend your time shaming people. Spend your time saying, yes, you're right. This is terrible. We should always reject it when you know a country's dropping bombs on millions of innocent people and then hold everybody to that standard across the board in Yemen and Syria and Iraq. And that's how you sort of facilitate the change rather than you know making people feel horrible for, for having a feeling they should have, which is you should be horrified by what's happening in Ukraine. It's a terrible, horrible thing. Exactly right. You know, um, uh, I tell you what, doing what I do, I imagine doing what you do as well. Uh, you get to meet people of all stripes. And what I've really found out when I, you know, I tell people all the time, most people are good, right? And uh, I tell people that all the time. And everybody, you know, my, my audience is mixed. I mean, I'm very, very, I have liberals, progressives, uh, black, white, everything, big audience, right? That, that, that type of audience. And what I try to tell them as we talk together is that if we stop looking at each other as somehow what forces, and believe me, there are forces that need us to look at each other differently to keep the system alive, you need those forces. I said, if we start, I always talk about loving your brother on my show, my program, you know, if, if we just start thinking that kind of a way, you know what I mean? you'd start to see a whole lot of things change because my, when, when my right wingers come on and they, they name call me on my show, I look at them and say, Hey, cool brother. Still love you, man. And understand that a lot of these things are externalities. A lot of these things come from abroad and start looking at people's humanity proper. A lot of these problems are solved. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I mean, I, uh, one of the things I really like to do when people ask me about, you know, how do you talk about politics with people who you disagree with? Um, I get a lot of emails from, you know, readers who have an aunt or an uncle, or they have kids who are really politically opposite of them or friends even. And they just say, you know, I don't even know how to broach the conversation. And I'm like, this is such a golden opportunity. Most of us spend, you know, so much of our time arguing with people online and all this stuff, you know, you have a neighbor who has a big Trump flag out front. You don't know what his deal is or you're scared of him or whatever. Go buy a six pack of beer and walk over there and knock on his door and tell me you want to chat, you know, and yes. that, that is how yes. you actually bridge the gap and change things. And in my personal life, it's, 
it's worked wonders. You know, I'll talk to anybody. I'll chat with anybody. I interview anybody. Um, because when you talk to people and you break down that stuff, you actually, you know, can ma- make some progress out there in the world a little bit. We're almost coming to the end. I, I, I had a, uh, I used to go not all the time, but I actually got invited to a couple of, uh, tea. You remember the tea party days? Yeah. I was going to yeah. Honky tonky bars, drinking the tea party, <laughs> uh, you know, ha- hanging out with these guys and talking, you know, uh, not, not, not a, not, not a problem. Right. So, I mean, um, that beer thing works like a champ. I had a woman called me up one of my, um, one of my listeners and she said, Egberto, she lived in my part of town. I said, Egberto, can we go out to coffee? I really need to talk to you about my family. I said, sure, let's go. So I went and had coffee with her and what it was, it was Thanksgiving time and she was going home with her family and her family is racist. Her family are big Trump supporters and all of that. And she said, I, I don't want to go. I don't think I should go what you think or whatever. I told her, you need to go. And you know what? The first time they just said something, just say, I love you, man. We may disagree. Love you, man. You know? And she left there with a big smile on her face because I think one of the things is that she's so enlightened. She thought that it was almost doing something wrong by going to hang with her family who she knows was a racist bunch. And I'm like, no, it's your family. You know, just go out there and you keep trying, you know, just go out there. It does, it, it works. And in the long run, they will see what comes out of you and they'll change. Yeah. And, and to that point too, I should add, you know, there are a lot of conservatives out there who are scared to speak their mind because they feel like they're going to be hated by people on the left. And, and, you know, if you're a liberal and it sounds like maybe a lot of your audience is progressive, I mean, being able to hear somebody who is on the right espouse their political views and not immediately demonize them is a good way to earn their trust and make them mere you know, make them feel more comfortable and more vulnerable and more willing to talk out their side of things too. Because just like there are a lot of people like that who are scared to go home to their, you know, Trump family or their racist family or whatever, there are a lot of conservatives out there who are scared to speak openly about their views because they're worried about getting canceled or screamed at or labeled a racist Mm -hmm. or a bigot or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're really not talking to each other enough right now. It's a big problem. That is so true. Well, let me ask you, Isaac, last question is, um, and I asked this one to everybody on my show at the end, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, I would have liked you to ask me um, something about my political views changing, I think. That's always a good question. Well, you know, have at it. (laughs) Well, I I guess uh, to that point, you know, what I like to say when people ask about, you know, you one of the questions I get from a lot of people is you write this newsletter, you always talk about changing your political views, you know, where have your views actually changed today? I guess I had a little bit of an example that I'm going through this thing with the the military funding. But um, one of the one of the political views that I've had really change, not I guess my political view hasn't changed, but I've become a lot less radicalized about it is the issue of abortion, which I am a pretty still vehemently pro-choice. But in my experience writing this newsletter, I have interacted with a ton of readers who are anti-abortion, pro-life conservatives. And 
talking to them, emailing with them, writing with them, even having a phone call with a few, I've realized that kind of the caricature that I've been fed of most pro-life Americans is actually just that. It's sort of like a really extremist version of these kind of really hateful, oftentimes super religious, very, very, very conservative Americans. And what I've found is that a lot of these people are just like really decent people. They they don't want to control women's bodies. They just fundamentally want to, you know, keep life. And, and I, and it's a much more relatable position from talking to them about it. And I've sort of come to realize that, um, you know, not every pro choice or not every pro life person out there is just like a raving religious zealot. A lot of them are actually not religious. A lot of them are Democrats. A lot of them are politically moderate. They just have this issue that they really care about, whether it's because of religion, whether it's a scientific thing that, you know, once they hear a heartbeat, they feel that means we should preserve the life. Um, and, and I just really come to kind of respect a lot of their, I guess, motivations for that political view, even though I still disagree with them. And I think there's a lot of other reasons to disagree with them aside from just the really religious conservative stuff. But um, I've learned to have really productive conversations about it, which I never thought I'd be able to do since I think it's one of the hardest topics in the country right now. Prescient, prescient. I tell you, um, if I had more time, I would like I would have told you about my Medicare for all story and a, a conservative, <laughs> a, a conservative woman ultimately coming up with that solution herself. And when realizing that she came up with the same solution that I did, who at that point she didn't know I was progressive said, but you're so nice. And the reason I'm saying that is you use the word caricature. Her belief of what a liberal or progressive looked like was a caricature. And like you just said there, once you start to talk to people, it's no longer about being a caricature, like you said, it's about just the humanity in all of us. Isaac, uh, Paul, I looked at, I, when I saw your name, I said, two <laughs> names out of the New Testament. Yeah, Isaac. <laughs> or maybe, maybe maybe the other thing as well. Maybe, maybe the, uh, the, the, what is it called again? Um, well, you know what I'm talking about. The Torah. The Torah. That's what, that's, I was trying, that's I was right. trying to get it. I'm a good Jew, baby. Hey, but you know, <laughs> It is funny. It is funny because that's the first that after I said that, I'm said, no, maybe I should say the Torah, right? Then, <laughs> hey, we we're we are people, man. We're people. Anyhow, Isaac Paul, it's been my pleasure to have you are a great interviewee, man. I I, I love your politics or non-politics, whatever the hell it is. And uh, you know continue doing what you do with your newsletter. I think we need a whole lot more people out there that are presenting our politics the way you present our politics. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And if people want to check it out, go to readtangle.com and you can find the newsletter and, and soak it all in. All of it's going to be in the bottom of the blog, folks. Check it out. Thank you so kindly. Take Thank care, you, Isaac. Arthur. Have a good one. You can listen and or watch Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My Twitter handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L. -L 
I-E-S. But don't you forget, listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. all Central Time. Please get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it for a pledge of $120. Get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. The Contributions for my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT-only membership for $40, a Pacifica-only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org, choose Politics Done Right for the program, and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT on your mind. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support. That is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Well, folks, that's it for today. You know how I'm going to end this baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. 